Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Putin's rolling war against the West. The Russian president has, of course, invaded Ukraine, causing death and destruction to his neighbour. But the Byline Times has been reporting for years now about a broader conflict inspired by the Kremlin an information war designed to undermine democracy. We'll be hearing from Keir Giles, the author of Russia's War on Everybody. From Byline Times executive editor Peter Jukes, who'll be telling us about a landmark ruling in Strasbourg about Russian meddling in Brexit. And from Heidi Kuda, who has been writing about all of this on our newest platform, bylinesupplement.com. Before all of that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper where you can see features that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer telling us what to say. There are no large corporations leaning on us to support their interests. We rely instead on ordinary readers to help us expose corruption, to hold the powerful to account and to support our non-partisan journalism. You can find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And thank you to everybody who has already subscribed. Let's say welcome then to Keir Giles. Giles, hello. Welcome. Your first time on Byline Radio. Lovely to have you with us as well. And your book is called Russia's War on Everybody. In your view, what lies behind that war and when did it start? Well, when did it start is a tricky question. The problem is it never really stopped. And the reason for that is what lies behind it is the view that Russia has of the rest of the world that has never really changed. Now, it looked as though there was a time when we were more at peace with Russia, when Russia was less inclined to reach out and do damage to the West. But that was a function of two things. First of all, a period when Russia was weaker and poorer and so didn't have the means to conduct some of the campaigns that we're seeing now. And also, simply paying less attention to it, simply thinking at the end of the Cold War that everything was going to be okay now because we were all friends. The trouble is Russia's ambition and Russia's ideas of how the world worked and its own place in the world never changed. They always had the intent to wage this war against the West. It was only the capability that was different. I mean, even in the Gorbachev era, really? Well, especially in the Gorbachev era, let's not forget Gorbachev did not set out with the intention of bringing down the Soviet Union. He wanted to make a better, more efficient Soviet Union. And people often think of the Yeltsin time as when the West was most capable of having a friendly, constructive relationship with Russia. But look at what the people who were running Russia's defense and security organizations were saying at the time and were being ignored at the time. They were saying that, no, they still want there to be a Soviet Union or a Soviet Union lookalike with Russia in charge of it. And they're not expecting this period of peace with the West to last because the kind of relationship that they want is not the kind that the West was willing to give. So the fall of the Berlin Wall and the period of Glasnost was never really a conscious dismantling, in your view, of the Soviet Union. It happened because of things that were done 
perhaps particularly by Gorbachev, but that was never his intention to dismantle the Soviet Union. No, Glasnost and Perestroika were an attempt to get over the things that were very obviously wrong with the Soviet Union and fix the system because the system was not working and it was clear enough to Gorbachev that it was going downhill fast. But instead of demolishing it, no, he wanted to make it work better so that it could continue for longer. Peter Dukes, welcome, executive editor of Byline Times. In your view, when did modern Russia or Putin's Russia then start to attempt to undermine the West? And how did that play out? The president who's extended his presidency for whatever 21, 30 years was a KGB agent in Dresden, which we know, and that's what Vladimir Putin did, was seek to undermine to economic, to quasi-terrorist means the West, if you like, or the NATO alliance. Listening to Keir is really illuminating because I'm often blame the West for what happened in the 90s. Like if you talk to often on this show, our great Russian-born writer, Zarina Sabinsky, I say, oh, you know, the privatizations the West imposed after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 ruined everything. We thought accelerated privatization and it all ends up in kleptocracy. He said, no, it was Russia's fault. I the Siloviki, the combination of organized crime and the security state were always there. So I think the interesting moment is well, the moment they seem not to be pursuing, looking at it from Keir's point of view, and a very interesting moment in the early noughties after 9-11 and the beginnings of this huge global war against terror from the US that Putin sort of sidled up to Bush said he'd support it. He had already launched his own kind of war on terror in Chechnya, which aided his prospects for presidency. And it really, I'd say, around 2008, it becomes clear with Georgia, it doesn't like the color revolution in Ukraine, the first one. And then clearly, it all turns. 2012, he runs for presidency again after a brief interregnum with Medvedev repression of pussy riot, repression and heading towards effective annexation of parts of Ukraine. The Maidan, 2014, Bogosian, the Wagner operative, we also run the Troll Factory. It all starts kicking off around then. Keir would have a better view of that. But looking back over the last 32 years since the fall of the Soviet Union, it's almost five years where they're not still at war with the West. But as part of the war that is waged in the later years, there is the use of influence through business, through the undermining of Western democracies in a non-military way. So I suppose that's the change, that's the twist compared to the Soviet era. So, yes, and I'm sure Kirill will have views on this, I know Heidi does. Basically, whatever it's called, whether Grasimov, their sort of top general, their top military analyst, he calls it alternative war. Whether he means that, we don't know. Hybrid warfare, alternative measures. Hybrid warfare, he talks about. If we look at it, it makes a lot of sense. You have a country with an economy the size of Spain, for all the vastness of its territory and its mineral resources. The Russian Federation actually has quite a small economy, but a vast, if decaying military infrastructure with thousands of nuclear weapons. And so what it does is, like al-Qaeda did, asymmetric warfare. You don't go for a direct confrontation. You suborn through money, economic pressure, especially 
Western European countries dependent on Russian fossil fuels. As we've seen, a riot of money, oligarchs, proxies who like Abramovich travel around the world. They buy football clubs. They're part of the glitterati. They become major donors to Conservative Party, for example, in this country. And then you have a direct funding across Europe for 10 years of Eurosceptic, mainly right-wing, not always right-wing parties, the FD, Front National, the Five Star Movement. There is a clear tactic of subversion. And Putin was never a general. He wasn't a Zhukov. He was a KGB agent. So the main emphasis is to destabilize, called reflective control. You could have create this information, this pressure around societies, and you fight them indirectly. And given that now Russia is indirectly fighting a relatively small neighbor and is stalled, if not failing, you can see why they took this tank. Indeed. And I'll come back to Kieran in a moment. I'm really intrigued to hear more from him. But let's bring in Heidi at this point. And Heidi, you've written recently about this at bylinesupplement.com. And part of your analysis, not least from talking to Kieran, is that one of the reasons Russia is pursuing these various forms of warfare, which we'll explore in this space, is because it knows it can't win militarily. Oh, absolutely. And it's not lost on me that we're on a platform right now that Fiona Hill, you know, a Russian analyst says is being used as a Russian propaganda platform. So I find this all very meta at the moment. I read a lot of history books. I interview a lot of history professors. And in Kier's new book, Russia's War on Everybody, there's a great line on how Russia missed the Enlightenment and the Reformation. And I believe we are still living in their dark ages. And that goes back to sort of Putin's view of the world and what he does and all this cloak and dagger spy stuff. We know when he was the deputy mayor back in St. Petersburg that he was sort of the connection between the politicians in that community as well as the mob and that he was stealing from the very beginning. And the reason I thought it was so important and the team at Byline, I believe, thought it was so important I think too much reporting on this hybrid warfare and on active measures is compartmentalized. And I thought it was very important that we zoom out and look at all of the chaos actions that have been occurring in recent years. Some of them we've already forgotten about because so much comes at us so quickly. And we see the areas where many of our country's freedoms are being viewed as a weakness and being weaponized against us. And that, of course, leads us to this type of cognitive warfare where the human brain is essentially the target. Hardeep came up with the brilliant framing of the rolling insurrection. You know, the way I look at it is that Putin's generals are still in the field and we are failing to stop them. I don't want to keep reading reports three years after the fact saying, here's Russia's involvement. We know their tentacles are in all these acts of chaos, Africa, Italy, France, US, UK, Germany, Austria. And yes, it goes back to your original question. Russia knows it can't win on the battlefield with the West. So instead, we are literally suffering the death of a thousand cuts. And wedging, of course, is a major issue. When acts occur, perhaps organically, their operatives 
move in to then exploit them and agent provocateurs. If they didn't start the chaos, they will exploit the chaos. And unfortunately, it's that type of infiltration that we saw at the Women's March, Standing Rock, so many movements that is forcing people who once used to come together in the middle for community, pushing us all each to the extremes, to the left and to the right. So we hate each other. And that is the problem that we are seeing very much in America. And I'm sure that people in the UK can relate as well. Was it a case, do you think, that the West took its eye off the ball, that it was simply guilty of wishful thinking? I'm thinking of books like The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. Did we simply hope that Russia had changed or did serious analysts believe that they had? Well, unfortunately, it's not past tense. People still do hope that there is scope for change in Russia or that it has changed. And you hear some European leaders talking about the end of the war on Ukraine as if they're going to go back to some golden age of peace with Russia that supposedly existed before February 2022, but in fact, never really did. And part of the problem, of course, is it's so easy to forget that this is a permanent problem. Now, Heidi talked about zooming out and not looking at isolated instances, but instead looking across the board, across the full spectrum. That's actually one of the things I've tried to do in the book, because so often people look at these individual actions that Russia takes and tend not to join the dots. But instead, if you look at it as a system of subversion in all of the possible areas that Russia can attack, it starts to make a lot more sense. But I'd also suggest zooming out in time as well. Now, Adrian, I think I might have misunderstood, but I think you were suggesting that what we're seeing now is different from Soviet times when Russia had as well overwhelming military might. But actually, it isn't. So many of the things that we see now are actually just permanent practice from Russia. I suppose my image as a non-expert is that in Soviet times, obviously, you had two major armies effectively pitted against each other. And that was the essence of Russia's threat to the West. But you're saying that these kinds of asymmetric warfare that we've heard discussed already were already part of the Russian armory in Soviet times. Absolutely right. Just because Russia has from time to time had a powerful army doesn't mean that it is any less interested in ways of winning without fighting. So all of the patterns of subversion that you've been hearing about through media, through business, through politics and so on, were all very busily and actively engaged in by the Soviet Union, which is why we had so many scandals of people working for Moscow and subverting their own political systems across the whole of Europe. And some of those, of course, hang over to the present day because some of our senior, older politicians were in those networks during Soviet times. But now Russia has more options, because previously, if they were constrained to working through people just on one end of the ideological spectrum, because they supposedly subscribe to communism and we're using that as a vehicle for political influence, now they can work across the board. And any extremist whose views happen to be more or less sympathetic to Russia can be exploited in that way instead of just being on the far left wing. Yeah, is there also a change in degree? I mean, clearly there are extremely wealthy Russian individuals now who are active in the West, oligarchs who weren't 
active in the Soviet era. There isn't a, a direct parallel, it seems to me, to that. Obviously, we have the possibility of cyber warfare now, which wasn't possible during the Soviet era as well. So is there, would you accept a, a kind of difference in degree now in terms of how Soviet influence works in a malign way? It's the same basic principles, but yes, it comes through in different ways. And you can think of that as scale or speed or extent. And the clearest example is exactly what you mentioned. It's cyber. It's the fact that Russia can now use the internet to carry out some of the actions that previously would have been far harder, far more expensive, far more painstaking. And the clearest possible example is disinformation, planting false stories to discredit the West or to make a permissive environment for Russia's own actions, which used to be a process taking months or years involving seeding stories in obscure third world journals that eventually would be picked up by mainstream media in the West. Now it's a matter of minutes between something being dreamt up by a Russian propagandist in Moscow and St. Petersburg and then being enthusiastically disseminated by one of their useful idiots in the West to an audience of thousands across Twitter, for yeah. example. And you, Heidi, to pick up on your earlier point, you believe that those <laughs> useful idiots in the West include Elon Musk, include Donald Trump. Yes, I do. I think that agents of Russia come in all shapes and sizes. And the only way we are going to get past the denial of this is what I have learned from Kier. The most direct way is for leaders of the West to get up on primetime news and stand in front of their people and say, we are target nations of cognitive warfare. There are no rear areas. We must address the fact that we are target nations of this type of nefarious active measures. The tentacles are everywhere. Nobody is immune to it. And then we can get past the denial that it's even occurring and start to see some solutions, which other countries have already made much more progress. But until our leaders address this as war and declare it as such, I think that the denial is going to continue. And for me, I don't know how many more shootings we need and how many more weird domestic attacks on power grids and how many more politicians need to be shot at or hit with a hammer for us to understand that we have a radicalization problem and that radicalization problem leads back to the Kremlin and to the fifth column operatives that they have engaged for this type of warfare. And Peter, here in the UK, we've spoken before, but it might just be worth rehearsing some of these discussions again for people who are new to this conversation about the power of Russian oligarchs in the UK, London's role as some kind of clearinghouse for Russian money and attempts at Russian interference in UK politics, including the EU referendum. Yes, it's clear that Fies Ahmed has written about this, looking at US Army intelligence analyses, that Brexit was the first phase, one of the big successes of this information blitzkrieg. I traced it back to really the return of Putin around 2012, the appointment of Alexander Yakovenko as ambassador here, and then approaches made, is in the news recently, I think if you read The Observer, Sergei Nalobin, friends, uh, conservative friends of Russia. I had some interesting interactions with him. And Alexander Udod, who made big overtures to UKIP and met Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, and they all end up going to the embassy about at least half a dozen times and to talk gold and diamond deals. You have Sputnik and RT 
pushing heavily first for the Scottish independence and Catalonia independence, by the way, before pushing for Brexit. So imagine it. I mean, here you go. One of the, and I do think it's a crucial moment, the Maidan, the Glorious, the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, over 100 Ukrainians shot, trying to defy the reinstallation of a Putin-backed Ukrainian president, Yanukovych, who suddenly says we're not joining the EU. And so those students and then their parents and doctors took to the streets of Kiev to join the EU. So one of, apart from the obvious target of NATO, the other sort of paradigm which terrifies Putin because it generally, not always, abides by the rule of law, some forms of transparency is the EU. So no better result than to get one of the biggest military force in Europe, the UK, to leave the EU and obviously targeting the American president. So there is no doubt. And when the Yakovenko returned, according to a diplomat who was there before the second election in 2019, when Johnson took office, Alexander Yakovenko returns after seven years and tells his fellow diplomats, as is being awarded the Alexander Nevsky Medal for military service by Putin, Britain is down on its knees and will be so for a very long time. There is no doubt. It's not the only cause. Obviously, there are pensioners in Oldham and fishermen in Grimsby who didn't like the EU. But that push of money, the CMS committee, the select committee which looked at Russia, the fake news around the referendum, said that alone the reach of RT and Sputnik was bigger than Sky. And then you have the troll factory, some of the characters they manufactured have immense influence. Enough to tip the vote? Who knows? Mm. But I would add one thing to this, Adrian. Yes, you could say definitely since the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, was founded by Evgeny Prigozhin, who also runs Wagner in 2014. Russia has had a head start. It had a major impact on Brexit, conflicts all over the world, right-wing parties all over the world, South Africa, you know, we know about doping and the Olympics, all kinds of institutions, then obviously Trump. But when real war came, who's winning this information war? Their cyber attacks turned out to be pretty ineffective. Their disinformation about why they were invading, they came up with these fake cases of atrocities in the Donbass, immediately discredited. And I would say one other thing is that having a spy, they'd have commissars, they'd have scientists. The Soviet state was run by communists who had some grip on mechanical reality. They had made quite made a lot of tanks, if not big ones. They could almost run nuclear power stations. You have a president who's captured by his own information operations. He believed in February last year that Kiev would fall, that the FSB told him that all these Ukrainians are going to rise up in arms and support a Russian invasion. So here is a spy trapped by his own propaganda. Here's a state now which tries to mobilize but can't do it. And I'd say that the recourse to alternative measures, ultimately, Putin has become a victim of his own propaganda. Kira, I'm just thinking, if you're listening to this conversation from a Russian perspective, you might be thinking the people on this broadcast are the useful idiots of NATO. You might think back to Putin's speech in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference when he said that NATO 
had contravened a previous promise not to expand eastward because it had invited Ukraine or made overtures to Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO. So from a Russian perspective, or for at least from Putin's perspective, it could seem as though NATO and the West and the United States are the expansionists, are the imperialists who have never accepted the post-Soviet peace. Well, certainly that's what Russia would like us to think. But let's deal with that in a moment. But first of all, the bigger problem is what you alluded to there, what Russians might think listening to us. And the head start that Russia has on us in that respect goes a lot further back than 2014. Because as soon as Putin arrived in power, Russia realized its own vulnerabilities in terms of information. And it realized that it was wide open to information and opinions and news and views from outside the country and saw this as a critical vulnerability because It wanted to reconstitute this hermetically sealed information space within Russia where the people could be told the official Russian state line and wouldn't have anything to compare it to. Now, it's not a complete uh, process of isolating Russia. Absolutely. There are still ways for information to get in and out. But they did have that 20-year head start and a very deliberate and very focused program of closing off all of those different means by which information from the outside world could reach and persuade Russians. And that's why when, for example, uh, we're asked by policymakers, as happens very routinely even now, how can we talk to ordinary Russians? How can we reach people with what's happening in the outside world, the answer usually is you're two decades too late because Russia's already seen that as a problem and has already within this sealed information space been engaging in over a decade of war propaganda, telling its people that they are in a state of conflict with the West already in every field up to but not including open military clashes. And now, of course, with the beginning of the war on Ukraine, they're saying, yes, we are actually fighting the West there as well. So we shouldn't underestimate just how different that information space within which now a young generation of Russians have grown up and all they've known for all of their lives is for everything that we take for granted as normal and natural. And that, unfortunately, is going to be a driver of this conflict for far, far longer. So to pick up on the point, though, I mean, Edward makes a similar point on Twitter. He says the last thing in the world that Russia ever wanted was war with the West. Russia has been under constant attack from the West for at least 200 years and amazingly still exists. I come back to the suggestion that countries like Ukraine and Georgia, which Russia had come to see as being within its sphere of influence, even in the post-Soviet world, regarded then as being turned by the United States as countries that the United States, from Russia's perspective, wanted to colonise. Yes, this idea that Russia has been under attack by the West for 200 years, again, is something that Russia clings to because if Russia can't be at the front of people's minds because it's important, it wants to be at the front of people's minds because it's an enemy. So it is inconceivable in Moscow that Russia doesn't matter enough that people simply aren't interested in it. So when Russia was insignificant in terms of global affairs after the end of the Cold War, when it was poor, when it was weak, when it was not able to throw its weight around during the 1990s, this in and of itself was a threat to Russia's self-image. But that problem of the status of the countries in between is just a symptom of that basic contradiction in worldviews between Russia and the West, because Russia takes it for granted that these should be 
governed from Moscow and that the peoples who live there should not have a right to independence and to determining their own future, which runs completely counter to everything that the West takes for granted about sovereignty, about self-determination, about people having rights. And unfortunately, those two positions are completely unreconcilable. So when countries in Eastern Europe look to NATO for protection and join NATO because they have this historical experience of being dominated by Russia with all the misery that that brings that we're now seeing visited on Ukraine as well, it means that NATO, whatever its wishes, is, as Russia says, a threat to Russia simply because it stands for defending people against Russia. Let's welcome a caller, shall we? Peter Queeley, you've joined our conversation. Welcome. Hi. Yeah. I agree with the idea that that a lot of people in the West don't know that Russians have been propagandized for decades. And yes, small percentages maybe know how to use VPNs and can use it safely without getting busted to sort of find some outside objective news. But I hope that after Ukraine wins the war, or even before it, that there is some large nonprofit, ideally based in Ukraine, um, to basically uh, do what Al Jazeera did to some of the uh, Arab world, to broadcast both in Russian and with video about what really is going on in Russia and Russia's past history of imperialism inside Russia itself, let alone outside Russia, as well as teaching democracy to different regions in Russia with specific languages inside the Russian Federation, as well as uh, explaining to the West Russia's past history of imperialism inside Russia, which a lot of people don't understand, and fact-checking Russia. Like, I see Russia and China as existential threats to democracies. And it's disgraceful that democratic politicians, generally speaking, as some are starting to wake up, have massively underestimated these decade-long non-military wars. Both of those dictatorships, as well as some others, have, have waged against democracies worldwide, especially in the West. So for sheer self-preservation, let alone like a long-term project to sort of do to Russia what Russia has done to us and maybe encourage some decolonization over the long term, because this is a long game thing, right, in Russia, I think that would be great. And Ukraine would be the perfect place because they know the enemy. A lot of them speak Russian and they could even create like a separate institute of people who want to learn democracies. Because like, if you've grown up in a dictatorship, whether Russia, China, Iran, etc., and it's been all of your life, even if you do have temporary democracy, like you know the Yeltsin period, people aren't trained for it. You need to train people how to disagree in in a civilized manner. You need rule of law. There's so many norms. There are so many preconditions to have an actual democracy. So you know democratize Russia. Peter, it's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for joining in. That's uh, Peter Queeley. Heidi, one of the slightly scary things, and I've been listening to a lot of 
your work on the radicalised part. I've been listening to the brilliant Coming Storm as well on BBC Sounds. And in a way, contrary to what Peter has said, or kind of the converse of that, is the number of people in the United States who believe that the election in which Biden beat Trump was stolen and who would... I mean, a significant number of people, according to one of the episodes of The Coming Storm I heard, would back a military coup in the United States. So we think about the West as a a freedom-loving entity. There are many people in the United States, it seems, who would quite welcome some form of military dictatorship. It's astonishing. When we see what happened in Brazil with what appears to be an attempted coup on January the 8th with the Bolsonaro supporters as well, there seems to be some kind of virus in the West, an, an anti-democratic virus. Yeah, I was just listening to previous speaker, Peter, thinking we need that here in America like yesterday. Um, so I just interviewed Dr. Mia Bloom, who has done a lot of work in this space for 30 years. She's been at the forefront of studying radicalization, and she's a genius. And she was just talking about how 30 million people are estimated to have been essentially radicalized in the last few years in America. Now, not all of them are going to go out and uh, create an insurrection, but how many do you really need? And we have a, again, our freedoms being exploited. Freedom of speech never meant that you could be a disgraced general and radicalize people en masse every weekend and basically create a cult around lies. And Peter was saying about Putin kind of getting high on his own supply. I do agree with that. I did a thread called Prisoner Czar, which sort of showed that he's become a prisoner of his own narratives and his own machinations. But the issue that we're having here in America is all of these active measures we're talking about, all of it is to create chaos and destabilization. And as Kier has taught me, sometimes there doesn't even have to be a reason for it. It's literally to create the type of destabilization which makes us vulnerable, again, to somebody who can step in and say, only I can fix it. And the problem, as Peter was saying, that it's easy to see these narratives as being false. It's easy to note that these are lies and that there are you know, no truth behind these active measures. However, what we have in America has been very effective is that lying is the message. And that is a Masha Gessen uh, phrase that I learned many years ago. So it doesn't matter what the truth is. The smart people will run around playing whack-a-mole, proving something's a lie. Meanwhile, you have somebody's grandmother who's on Facebook all day in her echo chamber getting radicalized to believe lies about satanic baby worshipers. And unfortunately, We don't have any way to bring these people back at this time other than one at a time, and we are not even addressing the problem. And that is where I'm turning to our president and our leader and saying, please, it's time to actually admit that we have this major, major crises and that we have to start creating methods and ways and NGOs to try to deal with it. The other thing I want to say is that the techniques that we're seeing is something that goes back to Soviet era called parasitizing. You might have a report that's true and it sounds good and it could run in you know, a newspaper that you believe is trustworthy. Journalism deserts is a whole other problem. But there inside that report, 
will be what is the kind of disinformation bomb. And that is what we're seeing everywhere. We're seeing truths exploited with these bombs of parasitizing. And one last thing I want to say is that Keir gave an 84-second explainer on our show on RadPod, where he basically explained what the Russian propagandists look like, what the domestic terrorists looks like, what unique qualities they have, what the people who are the trolls who are doing this type of work to create online harms looks like. I just retweeted it. It is so vital that everybody looks at that and sees who these people are who are committing these, what essentially are crimes against humanity to create chaos and destabilization to make it look like liberal democracies are ungovernable. Kia, you spoke about these irreconcilable worldviews. Are, are we doomed? Are we destined then to forever be locked in this state of perpetual Cold War or, sadly, as we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, occasional hot war? Well, forever is a long time. But the trouble is, it is going to last a lot longer than most people are assuming or hoping. And Adrian, with apologies, this is going to have to be my uh, my last comment as I'm overdue to be somewhere else. But it struck me what Pete was saying when he started his suggestions for what should be done about reaching into Russia with the phrase after the war. The problem is, after the war, this problem is not going to go away. After the war, Russia is not going to change its mind. Russia's people are not going to suddenly overnight change their views about their place in the world and what Russia is entitled to. And it will still be the case that everything Pete was suggesting is going to be seen as not only hostile, but an existential threat by Russia. All of those ideas that sound absolutely wonderful for making Russia a better place will still be things that they see as trying to undermine their social system, undermine their political system, overthrow their regime, and therefore as a hostile threat and one that has to be neutralized. And the problem is there's nothing that says once we have an end to the current fighting, even if we have a change of ownership in the Kremlin, the far deeper-seated ideas that drive Russia towards these confrontational attitudes, towards attacking its neighbors, as you said, both under the threshold of open conflict or over it sometimes, that's not going to go away. It's going to take a far, far longer time before Russia and the West are anywhere close to understanding each other and finding some kind of means of reconciling those differences. Okay, it's been great to have you on. Thank you very much indeed for joining Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. A really brilliant insight from Keir Giles. Russia's War on Everybody is his book out at the moment. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio. Or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast, you can support our work by taking out a subscription to the brilliant Byline Times newspaper edited by our colleague Hardeep Mathara, which comes out every month. And it's a brilliant read. And you get content within the Byline Times newspaper that you can't see anywhere else. It's fantastic value as well. So do check out subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. That's our news-breaking website. And take out a subscription, if you can, to our brilliant paper, The Byline Times. More details, as I say, at bylinetimes.com. Uh, Omar Moore has joined us. Hello, Omar. Welcome. Thank you very much, Adrian. And I really appreciate everything that Heidi, Peter, and previous speakers have been saying. I wanted to just make a quick point. Now, I didn't come into this conversation at the beginning of it. But I would say that 
people like Steve Bannon, for example, people like uh, Michael Flynn and others, I think, as individual actors, also very significant to some of what you've been talking about, certainly the very open promises by Steve Bannon to deconstruct and destroy the administrative state and the point at which that has been attempted here in the United States and in other countries where we were talking about Brazil and other nations. And uh, Steve Bannon, as, a, as an international actor, certainly, I think, has uh, played a role in that, as have, I think, many others. I do think that's just a, a point for consideration. And I do think about the photograph that I think many people perhaps in this form are familiar with, the infamous photograph of a few years ago of Vladimir Putin, Jill Stein, Michael Flynn, and a number of others sitting around the table prior to, I believe, 2016. I don't think that these kinds of things can be underestimated to the extent to which people of this grouping, people I've mentioned and others, have played a role in a lot of the kinds of things that are being discussed around Russia. And I just wanted to make that that point, that observation, Adrian. Thank Omar, you. thanks very much indeed. And uh, Heidi, I, I just uh, kind of one note of caution, I suppose I would sound, is that we're obviously got to look out for these threats to our democracy and be alert to them. Is there a danger, though, that we are guilty of, of building a, a web in our minds that is perhaps more sophisticated than is the reality that much of this, notwithstanding that Russia may well have designs on the West, but much of this is opportunistic, that it takes advantage of particular situations and particular people at particular times, rather than being a concerted, orchestrated war? No, I don't think so. I don't think that we can be vigilant enough in trying to get these messages out. And I just think it looks a little bit different here in America. You know, I wake up to the news of another mass shooting down the street from me. We have more guns in America than we do people. And that is always something that is never far from my mind. We have General Flynn and Bannon out there trying to stir people up and stir emotions up and bring back another civil war. And so, again, those are things that are continually exploited. I'm a student of Jason Stanley's who wrote How Fascism Works. And so I kind of funnel all the narratives I see through the various categories that he's taught me, the unreality, the mythic past, the propaganda, sexual anxiety, law and order, all of this. And so what I think we keep failing to really truly understand is that media keeps on saying, well, that conspiracy theory is not true over there and that conspiracy theory is not true over there. But what's collectively happening is all of these conspiracy theories are used to fuel uh, unreality, which is where people no longer believe what they see in front of them, what their eyes and their ears. It's a very Orwellian thing. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. And so I just think that point for me cannot be taken seriously enough because wherever I look, I see people who were quite normal five years ago, not making sense, not believing in science, believing that the people who are causing these harms are the good guys and really kind of getting things screwed up. And to Omar's point related to Bannon and Flynn, I have to wonder 
where are the failures of our intelligence agencies? Uh, because either they're incompetent or worse, and I don't know which it is. And I will just leave you with Carol Cadwallader's report um, that broke yesterday. Buried down in that report, there's a note that in London, there are more Russian spies than there have been since the Cold War. So no, I do not think that we can overstate the problem. Mm. Peter, final thought from you. We heard earlier from Kia talking about this irreconcilable worldview, and he believes that this is a struggle that is going to go on for many years, perhaps in different forms. Are you as pessimistic as he is? No, he's definitely right. And Hyde is right. This is a long-term battle. It's a long-term battle. It doesn't just exist between, if you like, the West or space of the rule of law and democracies. And Russia, China is also in the frame. I remember, though, in the 90s, and somebody used this very powerful expression when bankers were being shot. Friends of mine were out there, including my co-founder, Tim Colgrave, and friends of his got shot, um, that it was Weimar Russia. And in a way, we are seeing the consequences of Weimar Russia. But look to Germany for its slowness in giving military assistance. It dealt with its past. What Russia has never done, it's so apparent every day, I think it's what Kia's pointing out, is Stalinism is still alive. All the horrors of the gulag, the deportation of people, the use of rape as a weapon of war, which consistent in, you know, the, when they you know, reoccupied Germany. That has never been dealt with. And this is a lesson to all nations that you are cursed from the phantoms of your past. But I will say social media. What do most people on social media say to me? They say, look at the horrors Russia's committing in Bukha and Irpin and Mariupol. They don't go, a few go, oh, it's all wet cooked up by the West. Even social media, which is a great tool, early exploited by the Internet Research Agency and this attack surface of the Russians is not working to their end. And I do think that in the end, reality is inexorable. For all the Flins and the Banners, there are dozens of other generals and FBI agents. For the crazy guy with a gun going out to shoot his neighbors, their great neighbors are willing to protect them and step in. It's a hiding to nothing. The long-term prospect is still good. But it needs people of high vigilance, that are like Omar, like Heidi, like all of us, to be aware of how we're being attacked on our realities being distorted. But in the end, there is such a thing as a war. In the end, the Russians are losing. Peter, great to hear from you. Thank you so much for taking part tonight. That's Peter Jukes, the executive editor of the Byline Times. We also heard from Heidi Kuda from the Radicalised Pod, who also writes for bylinesupplement.com. And we heard from Keir Giles, author of Russia's War on Everybody. Thanks also to Omar and to Peter, who joined in our conversation as well. We'll be back again, having another one very soon, at Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces, or if you can't make that, you can always listen again via the Byline Times podcast. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and if you want to support Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I found this a really eye-opening, really at times mind-bending conversation. It's been really, really insightful. I hope you found it so too. So thanks very much indeed. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.